Well, as many of you know, we spent the first week of the year in a time of prayer and fasting. And the goal for that week, uh, for, for many of us, there were a lot of, I know, people who had their personal intentions with the Lord for that time. But as a community, our goal for that week was for God to speak to us about His intentions for us this year. God, what do you want to do in the life of Fellowship Church this year? What are you wanting to do in the community members that are present in this place? And we really did get a sense that God spoke to us, that he was uh, present for us. There were a lot of answered prayers in general that week in our community. And I know even for those of you who participated, uh, I heard some testimonies of what God was speaking to you, even about your own life and, and bringing some healing and uh, just really working in your hearts. And I, I was so delighted to hear some of those stories and, and to get a sense of what he's been doing. But there was one, uh, one thing that came up um, Ileana was sharing with our leadership team just about how God had placed Haggai on her heart. And then uh, I think maybe Paul had a similar thing. Like a couple of us had a similar thing. So then, then I went and read it, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is really it's kind of hitting me hard. It's just uh, because this is one of these books that really presents a challenge from the Lord to believers in all times and all places. We're going to talk a little bit about its historical context and what's going on in this book, but, but it really is a message for the ages to the people of God. And I have to be honest, I, I think here in church, I think we've only kind of preached through maybe one or two of the minor prophets. Um, I think we've done Joel and, and we've done uh, Jonah. Uh, and Jonah's kind of easy because, you know, there's a big fish, he comes and does his thing, and then Jonah has this plant. You know, it's, it's, it's a great, uh, easily accessible story for us. But, but a lot of the minor prophets sometimes can feel really, uh, they feel really out there. They feel kind of strange to us. Uh, but Haggai is one, I think, as you read it, and hopefully you'll read it on your own this week. We're going to do the first chapter today. It's only two chapters, so you can read it in a sitting. Uh, but you can really get into what what the message of the Lord is without a whole lot of historical context because it's just so obvious uh, what it is that God's calling his people to. And it's the kind of relationship that God's desiring to have with his people. Uh, And so as I read it and Sonia read it and we were praying, we were like, oh, we really feel like God is saying, let's let's start out this year uh, turning back, turning back to the, the, the big things of God. And I think that's a good practice for us in general, hopefully in your own life, around New Year's. It's a natural time. Do any of you do New Year's resolutions? Anyone? I've got one, two. Is anyone still keeping up with your New Year's resolution? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, okay. So uh, I kind of stopped doing them because I was so disappointed in myself for, for a long time. Uh, but, but I do find that it's a great time to step back and reflect and do some do some uh, soul searching and some, some reflection on your life and on your life with the Lord and, and kind of going to God and saying, what do you, what do you have for me? Some people will, will ask the Lord for a verse for the year or a word for the year. That's great. I don't, I don't do that either, but it's really whatever just has a sense of import for you. But, but I definitely do take time to say, God, what do you want to speak to me about as we come into this new year? And I found that as I was reading Haggai, man, did the Lord start speaking Boy, and, I, and, and the thing is, as you'll soon see if you haven't read it recently or you've never read it, you'll soon see uh, most of what God has to say 
uh, is not particularly pleasant in the front half, although there's a lot of encouragement in the end. So I'm just going to set, that's the setup today, is that this is a difficult book in a sense, because if we read it with honest hearts and open eyes and ears to hear, I believe we're going to be challenged. And, and there will be a cause for most of us, probably all of us, for some type of repentance. Um, I promise you, I, if you're looking back there at our cards, I'm not going to ask you to write your sins on a card and put them on the board or anything like that. Um, but the Lord, if the Lord does, there's probably some cards still back there, but I'm not. Uh, but, but probably um, he will invite you to do some reflection today and even next week as we continue the second half of this book, this minor prophet of Haggai. So that's my really like delightful, encouraging opening for this little mini-series on Haggai. But uh, I do believe that God wants to use this for us in this moment. And I think that one thing that we can do is, I'm, I'm just about to get into it, but one thing we can do as we're preparing, even right now, is I want to invite you to take a moment and do this. Um, let me give you a little background. A lot of times we have in our mind things that we, that we uh, kind of like or get excited about in God's Word. And then sometimes we see something in God's Word that's different from what we like or get excited about, and then we resist it. Right? Have you ever been there? Anyone? I've been there. I find it's really helpful to tell the Lord, Lord, I'm coming to your Word today with a posture of submission and obedience. And Lord, whatever I find there, I'm committing now to obey it. And what that does is it takes the tension off, you know, in the moment. Am I going to accept this or not? Because you've already committed. And I believe the Lord will honor that and help each one of us. So just take a moment, however, whatever wording is right for you, um, just to tell the Lord, God, I'm ready to hear and receive whatever it is you have to say to me today from your word. I'll give you a moment. Well, the book of Haggai is, again, a short minor prophet in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, again, we're talking, this is written to the people of Israel. And we're going to talk a little bit about the dynamics of reading something that's written to Israel and then applying it in the church. But this book is written to Israel, and it's written in a time of history uh, after the exile. So if you, a quick recap on, on the history of Israel is, God you might remember, calls Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery uh, with Moses and takes them through the promised land. I mean, takes them through the wilderness for 40 years and under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb, he takes them into the promised land. And God says, I'm giving you this land flowing with milk and honey and if you will commit yourself to me and to the covenant I'm going to make with you, then I'll bless you in the land. Uh, he even says things like, you're going you're gonna to live in cities that you didn't build. You're going to uh, take the grapes from vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to have olive oil from, from the olive trees that you didn't establish. 
God's providing this as an incredible gift to his people. And he says, basically, if you honor me, then I will honor you. If you love me and trust me, then I'll bless you. And so he takes them to this place where they all commit as a people to honor the Lord. And he says, if you keep this covenant with me, then I'll keep it with you. And then he takes them into the promised land. And then, of course, you know what happens after that. Uh, The people do not keep the covenant. And so what God does, he says, hey, I'm going to send these people to you to remind you of your obligations and your commitments. The commitments you made out of love, not, not out of, not out of uh, oppression, but out of freedom. And so the people would kind of turn back to God and then they'd go their own way again and he'd send someone else. They'd turn back to God and they'd turn away again and he'd send someone else and they'd turn back to God and turn away again. I could keep going, but we only have two hours here, right? So, not really. So, so there's this pattern. And then finally, God says, okay, look, uh, let, me, let me give you, they had asked for a king. He, they get a bad king. God says, all right, I'll, let's try it with a good king. So he gives them a good king. And there's still problems. And then, of course, that kingdom falls apart. It's divided in half because the people rebel against, against, uh, against God. Even the kings rebel against God. So finally, God says, all right, I've had enough. I'm going to do what I promised I was going to do from the beginning, that if you will not honor me, I will spit you out of the land. And he spits them out of the land. First, the northern kingdom that's called Israel at that time, and the southern kingdom that's called Judah. And he uses these foreign armies. He uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Uh, But at some point in time, and I've got a little timeline. I don't know if you guys can see that at all. For the for the people who are at the young adults dinner, you could probably see it, and the rest of us <laughs> can't. But basically, uh, God allows for the people to go back to Israel after their exile. So all of these prophets like Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, a lot of the major prophets in the Old Testament, this is written while the people are exiled, while they're living outside of the land. Jeremiah, these prophets. But then they come back into the land... And then God speaks to them again. And if you remember from our Nehemiah study or from reading Ezra, God calls them to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they begin to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation and then they stop. All sorts of reasons, right? Uh, They are struggling financially. The population of Jerusalem is very small at this point. They don't feel like they have the resources. Everyone around them is against them. Uh, and, and you have to understand that the rebuilding of the temple is not just like us building a church building. So it's really important. Uh, if, if we lost our church building, then we would have two options that, were, that are actually relatively easy compared to what they were facing. One, if we really wanted to, we could just go to church around the corner. Right? There's another one. There are other churches. There's other buildings. But two, if we also wanted... We could meet in anything from someone's backyard to a tent to a rented space, and it's no big deal. Because in the church age, the church is not the building, right? The, the temple of the Holy Spirit is not the building. It's you and me and us together. But in the Old Testament, the temple of God is literally the house of God, literally the house of God. It's literally where he lives, If God's going to show up on earth, he's going to show up in the temple. And if you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, you remember that from Indiana Jones? The Ark of the Covenant is literally his chair 
in his throne room in his house called the temple. And so if there's no temple, there's no presence of God. If there's no throne room, then there's no throne, then there's no king. This is huge. It's huge. And for the whole world to know about God, the way they would do it is they would come to the temple. This is where all the action is. And if you were a Jewish person, this is really important. Jesus hasn't come yet. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, you need to sacrifice. But there's no sacrifice if there's no temple because the temple is where the altar is. So God receives the sacrifices at the temple and all there is there is a slab of stone and nothing else. This is where God speaks to Haggai. This is where God shows up and calls the people to a new way of living. So I encourage you, open your Bible or your phone or your app or grab the Bible underneath a chair around you and open up to the book of Haggai. And let's read together. By the way, uh, uh, this is, I think I've got it right, yeah, 520, the year 520 B.C. We know this because we have the date and we know the history right here, the very first verses. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So Haggai is supposed to speak this word to the governor and the high priest. And by the way, um, Haggai doesn't actually have an office. He doesn't, he, no one, no one uh, came to him and said, we hereby appoint you the prophet over Israel. Uh, so he just, he goes on the strength of the word of the Lord to the foremost political authority and the foremost spiritual authority in the land and he's about to rebuke them. Fun stuff, right? So if you're ever afraid to speak truth to power, just remember people like Haggai who, who had to do this. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And I just want to alert you that whenever God starts a prophecy with something like these people, he's not happy. Whenever there's this wonderful prophecy, God starts off with my people. But it's when he's like, those people, you know he's not happy. And that's how this prophecy starts. Those people. Those people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? You do not want God to ask you that question. You know, if you're remembering, if you're alert to the first time the temple was built, do you remember who built the temple? Solomon. Who wanted to build the temple? David. Do you remember what he said? He says, Lord, I'm not feeling very comfortable because I've built my paneled house and you live in a tent. Let me build you a house. And God stops him. He says, wait, you're not the one who's going to build this house. Your son will build this house. 
But he loves David's heart, doesn't he? David is feeling remorse that he's got panels and God has goat skin or, or whatever skin, you know, a tent. And so he, he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, this isn't right. And God says, I agree with you, but you're not the one to build it. That's a great conversation about paneled houses and temples. But when God says, hey, how come you guys have paneled houses and I've got a slab of stone? I've got a ruin. I've got something that's been destroyed. Because in the exile, the, the invading armies destroyed the temple. And so all that's left, uh, again, they had, they had reconstituted the foundation. But that's all that's left. And so God asked them, what gives? What gives? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 5. Give careful thought to your ways. Pay attention. I want you to look at this closely. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. Or possibly, literally, you drink, but you can't get drunk. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in, the pur- in a purse with holes in it. Now, because it was the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month in the Hebrew calendar, we know that this prophecy is coming sometime in August of the year 520 B.C., and the thing is, in Israel, by August, you've already finished most of the major harvests. There's a late fall harvest, but most of the harvest happens in June, July. And so the people, they're not just remembering their bad harvest from a year ago. They're remembering their bad harvest from a month ago. And they're thinking, how are we going to make it through this year? And even the money they earn, which, by the way, in Israel, typically, before the exile, there was not a lot of wage laboring. People had land, they had farms, they grew things, they built things, uh, they weren't employees. Like for us, that's, a, that's, of course, probably almost all of us are employees in this room. But in Israel, very few people were employees. And so to be an employee was to be disgraced already. And he says, even though you you earn your wages, you put them in a purse with holes in it. I don't know if any of you ever feel like that. Like maybe your bank account's leaking. They were feeling that. And the thing is, without the prophet, you could look at that situation and think, oh, we're having a bad year. It'll be better next year. Oh, we had some bad breaks. You know, maybe there just wasn't quite enough rain this year. But surely next year will be better. So God wants to make it really clear to them what's going on. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Again, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. He says, and the, the translation of that verse is a little tricky, but it's, he's really saying is, 
so that I will take pleasure in you and I will finally be honored in the way that I ought to be. He says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of the heavens, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the olive oil and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. You know, when God called them into this land, he made a promise to them. And he says, you will eat and you'll be satisfied when you come into this land that I promised to your fathers. He says, but do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And here they are, they forgot the Lord. They put the Lord last. And, and God speaks to them about three very common elements of picture of blessing. In fact, it's one that we have right up here on our wall. In the book of, in the book of Joel, when God promises to bless again his, his people, he says, your threshing floors will be filled with grain and your vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And here, he says that... Uh, says, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, and on the olive oil. This is the blessing. This is the curse. God is saying, you broke my covenant. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. And so now I'm going to take away the very things that I promised to give you. And in fact, this drought's so bad that it's not only not raining on the plains where there's never as much water, but it's not even raining up in the mountains where there usually is a lot of water. So it's not only is there a lack in your fields, but there's even a lack up in the hills. It's a severe drought. And he says, it's going to be a drought on your grain, your wine, your olive oil, and everything else the ground produces. On people and on livestock literally on people and on beasts, which probably indicates that even the wild animals are struggling to find food, and on all the labor of your hands. So I don't think I need to belabor this too much. You guys see what's going on, right? These, these people wanted, they wanted something, and they expected it, but they didn't get it. It says they sowed a lot. They, they put a lot of seed in the ground. They were expecting a great harvest. But it never came. They were anticipating new wine and oil. But there wasn't enough. So then they went out to work. And even the money they earned wasn't enough. I'm guessing probably because of the drought. And just, you know, we don't think about this in Bible times. But because of the drought, it's probably a time of pretty high inflation. We know what that's like, Right? All of a sudden, your food costs more. Your household goods cost more. And so even the money that you have, it's not as much as you thought it was going to be. 
And God is blatantly, specifically, categorically telling them. And the reason is because you put yourselves ahead of me. You put your houses first. Oh, you're struggling financially, but then you're putting paneling on your house. Oh, you're, you're having a hard time buying food, but you're still building up your own, uh, your own homestead before you build up mine. He says, you've got it backwards, and I don't like it. And then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, this is verse 12, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. I draw out a few of these little things because I find them helpful for myself. Where it says the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, the Hebrew says the people heard the voice of the Lord. And then they feared the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, these two words are key words when it comes to our relationship with God, to hear and to fear. They heard and they feared. That's why when I was praying earlier, I said, Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, you're speaking. He speaks through this. He speaks through this. He speaks through this. God is speaking to us but so often we don't hear. And the Bible, when someone's not hearing, it's usually a sign of an obstinate heart, of a hard heart. This is why God tells them, you need to have circumcised hearts so that your heart will be tender, then you will hear the Lord. So there's this challenge to us these people they hear the lord and then they fear the lord and in the old testament there's even different words for fear there's the kind of fear that's you know the beginning the fear is the beginning of wisdom we we read that earlier in our service today the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom that's the kind of fear that says lord you're amazing i'm in awe of you i'm humbled before you this is the kind of fear that says, oh God, no, please don't kill us. <laughs> this is the kind of fear that looks a little more like terror. This is the kind of fear when you realize, oh, I'm, oh, crap. Oh, we did do exactly what he said and now we're in for it. That's this kind of fear. It's the kind of fear that gets people running to obey. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord of the people. And this is where it gets good, folks. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. This is, uh, when you read this, 
you know, first of all, you think, oh, that's great, they did it. That's great. They responded. But I want to point out a couple of things, as kind of like going back through, and pointing out just a couple of, of things that are really important, I think, for us to hear today. So that's the story, right? That's the, that's the historical moment. The people had not continued the work. They began the work and didn't continue it on the temple. And so what happens? God speaks. God initiates. God reaches out. And he reaches out in anger. And he reaches out and say, basically saying, what gives, guys? What in the world? How is it that you're focusing on yourself and not focusing on me? How is it that you're taking care of your needs but not taking care of the needs of the temple? How is it that you're building things but you're not building for me? And then he says this, not only is that going on, but you've seen the hardship that you've faced and yet you still haven't turned back to me. So let's make it clear. The hardship you're facing is because of your obstinate hearts, because of your selfishness and because of your disobedience. But even when the people turn to him, God wants to make it really clear that even still, he's the one initiating. They don't stir up their hearts. God stirs their hearts. God stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel. God stirs up the spirit of Joshua. God stirs up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And then they begin to work. By the way, like, 23 days later. <laughs> Gathering supplies, making some plans, sure. But it's a process. It's not just necessarily this moment and they get to it. God is, God is working on a community, but he's doing it by working on individuals. So there's really important lessons here for us. And they'll be relatively quick today, I think. Uh, one is this. Uh, I, this is really important to hear. I'm not saying that every bad thing in your life is because of your hard heart or your disobedience or not putting the Lord first. But I am saying that it is not out of God's character to bring hardship to us when we are hard-hearted, being selfish, and not putting Him first. And I don't think that in any way contradicts any of the other wonderful things I said about God's love earlier in our service. It's God's love that sends Israel into exile. It's God's love that pours out the covenant curses on Israel. Because God knows at some point, human beings get to the place where the only thing that will get our attention is pain. You probably know that quote from C.S. Lewis, that pain is God's megaphone. When, when we're not listening, when we have hard hearts, when we're being obstinate in God and we don't want to hear what God has to say, he often speaks to us through pain. That's his love. It's kind of like when you're, when you're a parent and your kid's running towards the street. Have you ever been there? I have. Oh, my goodness, Sarah, it was you. <laughs> it was you, the one I'm remembering we were at we were at the uh, uh, one of Becca's plays at the 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 old house the sixteen the Fairbanks house, 
And Sarah started running back to the car, which was on the other side of the street. And you know that street. Is that High Street? Or what is that? East. Oh, my goodness. And I'm like, Sarah, stop. Sarah, stop. Sarah, stop. <laughs> Out of love. And then I ran and practically tackled her. And, and you cried. But I loved you, and I could not. And you can imagine that scenario multiplied by, uh, uh, multiplied by people who are adults and who are a massive community of millions of people. And what does it look like for God to say, no, stop, and tackle you? It looks pretty rough. But this is love. This is love. What does it look like when it's someone in their, in their 30s or 40s who, who is, you know, walking with the Lord and trusting Jesus, but there's that blind spot that you have in your life, and maybe someone brings it up to you, but you don't want to hear about it, but God doesn't want you running out in that street. It's going to hurt, but it's love. So the first thing here is just to remember that this is not out of God's character. And there's something that I believe, and Sonia and I were talking about this last night as well, and you know, I know she agrees. And uh, There's something I believe, which is that in communities like churches, God, God has an incentive to... God has an incentive to have his people in healthy places. Right? And when people are denying the Lord or putting God last or being stubborn or obstinate or don't have soft hearts but have hard hearts, God God has some patience with that, but he doesn't have eternal patience with that. And when God says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, He doesn't mean the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, against any particular church. He means the church. And one of the ways that that is true is that God, the Bible talks about this, there's there's wheat and there's chaff. And that God in his wisdom and in his mercy, he will remove the lampstand, so to speak, from some churches so that the true church can remain. And when I even say that, I just wonder how much we think immediately, oh, well, I know churches like that. Oh, I know churches who've had their lampstand removed or who will soon. But I wonder how much we're willing to say, God, to what degree do you chasten us? Because although we get up here every week and preach from this book instead of something else, which is, hey, that's a great start. And because we mentioned the cross of Christ, his death and resurrection, and some churches don't, yeah, that's fantastic. But also, are we, are we as a people, and, I'm, and this come, that point comes right back here, are we as a people truly living as if God comes before anything else? You know, when, when we don't live like that, God makes very clear in Deuteronomy when he's actually making this covenant. He makes he's very clear what's going to happen. 
He says, you're going to sow much, but you're going to harvest little. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar for anything we just read in Haggai? He says, you're going to plant vineyards, but you're not going to drink your wine. You're going to have olive trees, but you're not going to have any oil. There is a degree to which we can say, yeah, not everything bad in life happens because God's, uh, God's putting some block there for us. But when it's the same kind of things over and over and over again, you, you really should start to wonder. Well, you said you were going to do it, and now it's happening, but oh, it's probably unrelated. Right? No. God, you said you were going to do it, and now it's happening, and here we are. But that's the Old Testament, right? We're not under that covenant. And that's true, we're not. We're not under this covenant, guys. This is a very different type of covenant. And the most basic way that it's different is that this is what we call a conditional covenant. If you do this, I'll do that. If you do this, I'll do that. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. And if you don't do this, I'm going to do that. Right? Blessings and curses. Do you guys know what kind of covenant we have with God through Jesus Christ? It's an unconditional covenant. It's like the covenant God made with Abraham. When he, I was reading this and I'm reading through the Bible again. I encourage you to have a regular reading plan of Scripture. I was reading through in Genesis, uh, I believe it's 15. And God calls Abraham and he'd promised him something, but they hadn't actually made the covenant yet. The covenant happens uh, in Hebrew, you, you cut a covenant. The covenant happens when you, when you cut these animals in half and you separate them and you create a pathway. And the two people who are making this covenant together, they, they walk through this path of the animals that have been cut and slaughtered. And what they're saying is, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. By the way, that's when, why when you get married, you walk down an aisle of a divided community. God, may, may I be cut in half if I break this covenant. That's where that comes from. But God does something interesting with Abraham. Right when it's time for Abraham to walk through the pieces, God puts him to sleep and God goes through it himself. And Abraham lays on the ground. God says, may I alone be cut in two if I break this covenant. That's the kind of covenant we have with Jesus. Jesus has already been broken so to speak. He wasn't cut in half, but his, he gave his life so that any penalty or curse that could come on us has already been meted out and only the blessings remain. But God's character hasn't changed. So we don't have a list like this. I can't say, well, Beth, you're obviously you're, you're not reaping. Where's your olive oil? And I don't see any wine on the table, so you're in disobedience. You know, it's not that cut and dry. But what we do have is a very different kind of promise. We have a promise from Jesus that says something like this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so then we begin to wonder, did Jesus mean what he said? And is this a promise that we can lean on? And if I don't have all the things... What does that mean about me? And by the way, Jesus, when he says all the things, he doesn't mean, you know, the Ferraris and the mansions and the things like that. But he does mean blessings. 
He does mean a rich relationship with the Father. He does mean the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Guys, he does mean in a community the expressions of the gifts of the Spirit poured out for the church and for the community. He does mean, I believe, seeing people healed. He does mean seeing lives restored. He does mean seeing uh, marriages brought back together. He does mean all these things. And we might begin to wonder, Lord, where are all the things? And so I ask you, where are all the things? Here's the reality. I could probably make you very upset with me just by listing what I would consider biblically to be really basic ideas. Really basic ideas. I'm going to do some of that right now and you might not feel good about it. I understand. I don't feel good about it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to hear it. Because this is not about me telling you how great I am and how good you're not. This is me telling you how great God is and how good we're not. Guys, when you wake up and when you go throughout your day and when you go to bed, are you putting God first? Do you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, this day is yours, it's not mine, and whatever you want to do with it is your business and I'm okay with it. This is not the temple, this building, but the body of Christ at large is the temple. And I don't think it's crazy to say that at least here in the United States, there are many who see the temple more as a ruin than as a beautiful, majestic building. Is that fair? And so you say, Lord, are the actions I'm taking today giving you glory and honor in the world or are they bringing you shame in the world? The way that I present myself, the way I address people, the way I interact with those I disagree with, am I, am I bringing you honor or shame? When I make financial choices, am I showing that you come first? By the way, it is interesting that in the scripture, God asks for the first fruits of the harvest. And he asks for 10% in the Old Testament, generally. Although, if you add up all the, the tithes and offerings and obligatory financial gifts, it really comes out for, to about 28 to 33% of a person's intake for the year. So, but let's go with 10 Am I sh he asked for the first fruits because you're not guaranteed the last fruits. Right? You could be harvesting and in the middle of your harvest there could be a massive storm that destroys your harvest or the locusts could show up and eat everything and you've already given away the, the best first 10% of your crop. But God doesn't say, I just, oh, any 10% is fine. He says, I want the first 10 so, are we living like that today financially? Are we showing God that, yeah, the most important thing, God, is, is you and your church? And again, I, I really have to be careful about this because I want to make really clear. 
I'm not saying, as your pastor, you guys need to stick 10% of your income in that, bu- in that box back there for the offering. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you do need to give 10% of your income. I, I do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out. Like, I do believe that is biblically godly. I believe God sets that as like a standard minimum for our display of trust in him, commitment to him, uh, faith and, and worship of him. Are you putting it to the Lord first? Now, I am saying that when you do that, I do believe that God intends for the majority of that primarily to go to the local body of the church. I do believe that. But it's not about me trying to get your money here. It's about God wanting you to orient your life in a particular way that you show that he's first. And guys, this one's a big one for me. When you're tired after a long day's work, you're feeling worn down, do you prioritize your entertainment and comfort or do you prioritize the things of the Lord? And the things of the Lord being anything from, you know, spending time in prayer, coming to a prayer meeting on Tuesday night, um, joining a small group here, to things like hosting your neighbor or reaching out to someone who you know is struggling and just give them a call or intentionally building time for yourself or your family to serve those in need. These are all things attending to the things of the Lord. It's not just one thing. There, there is this... Um, uh, we just recently had a fast. Community fast. And, this, and I, again, like I, I don't want to be up here like, trying to bring guilt on people. That's really not where I'm coming from. But did you participate? Did you, did you find a way to put God first in that, in that week as a community with us? You know, these are the things. These are the types of things that, that we have to consider. Um, and again, it makes me even uncomfortable to say it because I'm, I'm your pastor. Um, but, you know, in, in what ways are you submitting to your leaders? who are calling for a fast or for other things, you know, that, that come up. So that makes me uncomfortable to bring up. But I, but I do think these are the things the Lord is saying, you know, what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of heaven? Do you, do you take the opportunities to share the gospel even though you're really afraid of how it will impact you, your relationships, maybe even your career? You put in God first. Are we as a people able to hear and willing to fear the Lord? That's what it all comes down to. And I do mean fear more in that sense of awe and reverence and, you know, just acknowledging that God is greater than I am. Now, here's the good news. Uh, two, Two kinds of good news. One, it's never too late. It's never too late. There's nothing that you have done up to entering into this room this morning that prevents you from walking out of it with a different attitude, a different perspective, a different commitment. And guys, I'll just be really honest with you. I'm feeling convicted even as I say these things about my own life. There's things I need to change. So it's never too late until it's too late. 
right? It's never too late until it's too late. The other thing is this. You don't have to do this on your own. And guys, you've heard this from me, but if you haven't, if you're, you know, if you're new or if you haven't picked it up before, I believe that, you know, we often say things like, you know, in the Old Testament, it's all about laws and rules and obligations. The New Testament's all about grace and love and, and, and God, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say, no, no. God operates in grace the same way in the Old Testament that he does in the New Testament. You're not on your own. The Old Testament says God stirred up their spirits. The New Testament says, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You don't have to do this alone. This isn't a perfect analogy, but I kind of see it like this. The Bible uses um, a river as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Okay? You ever been in a lazy river? Yeah. I have two. Uh, I was in a lazy river a couple of years ago, and someone, did you lose your glasses in a lazy river? I'm not going to say who it was, but somebody <laughs> lost her glasses in her lazy river. And what I did is I, you know, the river's going this way, and I went this way. And I went this way around the entire lazy river three times looking for those glasses. We never found them. Uh, you have wonderful glasses now. Um, the Holy Spirit is a river. And I do believe that most of us spend the vast amount of our time and energy um, uh, going in a way the river is not going. Let's put it that way. And there is a degree to which being obedient to the Lord is simply just letting go and letting the river take you. And so if you're feeling some uh, guilt or shame as I'm preaching this morning, and maybe you're feeling overwhelmed and you think, oh, he's, he's got that list he was talking about. And by the way, that list, that's the short list. I've got all sorts of other horrible things you guys are doing that I could tell you about. Right? That's the short list. And you may be thinking, how in the world can I, can I do all those things? And I want to tell you, first of all, Again, it's not too late, right? But also, it's, it's, it's more of a letting go. It's more of a trusting and releasing than anything else. And, and as a believer, I spent a lot of my life not understanding that, thinking, oh, I've got to try harder, I've got to try harder, I've got to try harder. But it's more like this. You look where the river's going, and for a lot of us, where the river's going seems scary, Seems really scary, doesn't it? Because where the river's going requires you to do some really hard things. You know, the analogy, or the really lame analogy here is, you know, the lazy river goes past the waterfall, and the waterfall's scary. But if you just do nothing, you're going to go through the waterfall. If you just release yourself, you'll get through it. It won't be pleasant. The water's going to crash down. It might even hurt. You might get underwater a little bit. You might fear that you're going to drown. You might lose your glasses. But the river keeps going and it takes you through. So you don't have to be afraid that this thing that God's taking you into is too big. It is too big for you, but it's not too big for Him. Right? Will it overwhelm you? Of course it will. 
that's how you learn to trust, is that you get overwhelmed, but then God shows up, right? Are you going to be able to handle it? Probably not. But you're going to be able to handle the next one better because you went through this one. And so, so much of our life is seeing the waterfall and trying to change direction from where the river is going, where the Holy Spirit's going. But God will stir you up. The Lord will work in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. If you let him, if you abide in him and he abides in you, right? All of these things fit together. Um, Yeah, hear, fear, and then there's one other thing that they do. They jump into action. And this is not a contradiction of what I just said. If you let the river take you, then you will have to act. And it might just be you go into that waterfall and you've got to make sure you stay afloat, right? It might be that there's an obstacle in the way and there's some things you've got to do in relation to that. But the river keeps flowing. So it's not a, it's not a call for passivity, Right? It's a call for trust. And that sometimes leads to action. The only other metaphor I have, you know, when I use the word surrender, I think of, I think of you know, in, in war, and in ancient, older wars where you have, you know, you've got an army that's maybe in a fortress. And it's surrounded by another army. And so the commander says, all of my men will die if I don't give up. I don't surrender, they'll all die. We're going to starve. We're going to be hit by cannons. We're going to be shot if we don't surrender. And so you surrender. But once you surrender, then begins a lot of work because your, your army, you have to start packing things. You have to start preparing. And then you have to march. And you march right out of that fortress past rows and rows of armed soldiers just trusting that they're not going to blow your head off. It's a lot of trust. It's scary. But, it's, but then you act. You take, you take decisive action. But then you're no longer in danger. You come out of that danger. You know, no metaphor is perfect, but, but you, you get the image, right? So God wants us to run the gauntlet in the direction of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is what the people do. And God says, I am with you. I am with you. You're not alone in this. You don't have to worry that I'm going to leave you behind or forsake you or abandon you or harm you. You might get hurt, but you won't be harmed. Right? There are lots of things that hurt that are good for us. But I won't harm you. That's a promise from the Lord. My, my takeaway is this. You might have a different one. But in all places and all times, putting God first is the most appropriate and the most beneficial way for believers in God and Jesus Christ to live. I had intended to say this earlier, um, but in terms of that appropriate piece, you know, what could be more fitting in a world where God actually exists than to live your life fully surrendered to Him? 
and putting him first. If God is real, if the God that we say we believe in exists, then it would be ludicrous to put yourself above him. It's nonsense. And the most literal meaning of that word, it is nonsense. Yet we do it every single day, don't we? So Lord, help us. Lord, help us to be people who put you first. Lord, help us to be people who honor uh, the living temple, the body of Christ, not, not just this local church, but the body of Christ in the world. God, help us to be a people that are not caught off guard when we see things going on in our life and think, why is that going on? And not even consider that it's your hand at work, Lord, withholding sometimes and keeping us from things, Lord, until we're ready to live the way that you've called us to live. God, that we would seek first the kingdom of heaven and your righteousness, and then all things will be added, not to try to get it the other way around. Lord, if the people of Israel had waited until the circumstances weren't hard to build, to build the temple, it would never have been built. God, if we wait for everything to smooth out in our life before we're willing to honor you with it, it will never happen. In so many ways, because it's the lack of praise, it's the lack of worship, it's the lack of submission, it's the lack of obedience, it's the lack of trust that keeps us from those things in the first place. But Lord, you're good and you're faithful. And so we pray that you stir up our hearts. We pray that you work in us to do, to will and to act according to your good purposes. So that, Lord, even when we do let go and we do follow that lazy river, follow that river downstream, we'll find that it doesn't result in pride for us because we've done so many great things. But it just renews our sense of humility and our sense of perspective of your greatness in our life and how good you are to us and how faithful you are day in, day out, year in, year out, throughout our lives and through into eternity. And so, Lord, we trust you with all that we have. We trust you to the degree that we can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.